Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our awesome co-hosts, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajin Bakta. Hi, everyone. Hello. And we have a special guest with us, Mr. Scott Charleston. Hi, guys. Today, we're going to be talking about COPD versus CHF. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do! The brave men and women of the double A Are the best at what they do in EMS today The finest place in the world to be Is right here as a part of Americans' family Help is on the way, got a unit and route No matter the problem, when in doubt we send them out Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme Ten minutes or less, every call, every time This is my career path, this is what I do The double A's, red, white, and blue Get your call on Here comes American Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. All right, Scott. Well, thank you so much for being here today with us. Um, go ahead and tell us about yourself. Tell us about your role with American. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So uh, my name is Scott. I have been working here at American for about four years now. And before that, I was a flight paramedic in Arizona for about five years. Uh, I live in Madera, California with my wife and two sons, Andrew and Ethan, and uh, I'm one of the critical care paramedics here at American and also just recently got promoted to paramedic supervisor. Fantastic. Well, thanks for being on the podcast today, and we're excited to hear your story. Can you tell us about a case you've had? Yeah, so uh, I was dispatched out on an elderly female with shortness of breath, and when we got there, immediately as I walked in the room, I saw that she was in severe distress, that instant, uh uh-oh, this patient's sick, let's make this quick. Um, So I got up to her and and got her vitals and listened to her lungs. And this was a patient that uh, didn't have any history of CHF. She had a history of COPD. And I heard some wheezes in the uppers of her lungs. But she was also having about a two-day or three-day history of some pedal edema. And then she was hypertensive on on our blood pressure. I believe it was 165 or 180. Uh, over 100 uh, when we took her blood pressure. Um, so when you said she had wheezing, so was it wheezing all over her f- lung fields or just in part of it? No, it was just a real slight wheeze in the uppers. And it was it was actually hard to decipher from the ronchi in her lowers, uh, but and especially with her breathing, with how fast it was. So tell us what protocol you're on and how you went through it. So I followed the uh, CHF um, protocol, the pulmonary edema protocol. I immediately put her on high flow oxygen uh, by non rebreather at 15 liters. Got her moved over to the stretcher and and gave her uh, our nitroglycerin dose with her blood pressure. I was uh, gave her I gave her two tablets. It's 0.8 milligrams of nitro, um, and stuck the uh, nitro paste on uh, the two inches of nitro paste. And then uh, once we got her into the ambulance, we started her on CPAP and almost immediately saw an improvement in her not only in her distress, but also in her blood pressure. I think you did a great job of utilizing your history, but also changing it, your assessment and protocol based on your exam. What kinds of things do you look for when you're trying to, when you see these patients in respiratory distress, trying to decide which way to go? Yeah, I think one of the big indicators is going to be your blood pressure, uh, as well as the pedal edema. I don't think I've ever seen a COPD patient or an asthmatic patient with a long history that has pedal edema or, or is super hypertensive. So as I walk into the room, you know, th- if the patient has some risk factors like they're elderly or they're obese or 
They have these other issues where they have multiple medical problems. I'm starting to lean towards probably like a new onset of heart failure. But this patient also had a room air oxygen stat of 85%, and she was breathing at 40 times a minute. So uh, obviously this patient was in severe distress. Yeah, it can be really confusing. And and like I said, I think you did a great job of using all the data, gathering as much data as you could and following the right path. Great job. Thanks, Scott, for coming in today and sharing your story. Thank you. So today we're talking about COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease versus CHF, congestive heart failure. Um, so Sajin, why don't you tell us um, about this topic? So we see these diagnoses all the time, every day. And as Scott was showing us in his story, they can be really hard to differentiate, especially some of these sicker patients. They look really similar. They often have long medical histories and they all have chest pain and shortness of breath and they can present and decompensate very quickly. So turns out adults with respiratory distress make up 6 to 12% of all patients transported by EMS, which is quite a bit. I'm sure we all see these patients every day. And where do these patients end up? Well, in a study out of academic emergency medicine in 2014, of the patients with respiratory distress transported by EMS, half of the patients were admitted to the hospital, a third required intensive care, and 10% of the hospitalized patients died prior to discharge. Then 15% required intubation with mechanical ventilation. These are quite sick patients. Um, CHF or congestive heart failure made up about 15 to 16% of the patients and COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease made up about 13%. And there are lots of pre-hospital risk factors that are independently associated with hospital admission, include an increased respiratory rate and an encounter originating from a nursing home. So we often see patients from a nursing home and sometimes we can minimize their symptoms or we see someone who's breathing a little fast and we don't think too much of it, but these patients actually have a higher risk of being hospitalized and as we mentioned, have a potential to decompensate. What are we doing about this um, and why does this matter? A study out of the New England Journal of Medicine 2007 showed that ALS crews actually had a decreased in-hospital mortality of about 2 to 3% compared to other crews. And this is attributed to the use of early therapeutics, medications, uh, CPAP that the ALS crews are able to do. Additionally, in the Scandinavian Journal of Trauma, Resuscitative Emergency Medicine in 2016, they looked at how pre-hospital providers are diagnosing uh, respiratory distress, and they found that we're about 53 to 77% accurate in diagnosing what the true problem underlying etiology is. And notably, pre-hospital providers perform better or diagnose patients with COPD better than patients with acute pulmonary edema or heart failure. So that's something to keep in mind. And this kind of makes sense because it's harder to diagnose CHF, right? Like um, Scott talked about in his case, sometimes they have a little bit of a wheeze. So you hear that wheeze and you think, oh man, this is asthma or COPD. And you go down that pathway instead of realizing that your lungs can wheeze a little bit with CHF and it's really CHF. Let's talk about the pathophysiology of pulmonary edema versus the pathophysiology of bronchoconstriction that we would see with COPD. So CHF is the process that's causing pulmonary edema. So let's talk about how that happens. Basically, because the heart can't pump blood effectively, blood backs up. 
And so blood entering the right side of the heart from the body backs up into the body, then causing leg swelling, JVD, and then blood entering the left side of the heart from the lungs backs up back into the lungs, causing pulmonary edema and pleural effusions. And we say JVD, we remember we mean jugular venous distension. So you'd find that in your neck and you would see kind of bulging veins in the neck. Exactly. Now, because you're getting this fluid backing up into the lungs, um, your alveoli are filling up. And that's when you hear rails or crackles uh, when you listen to their lungs, when you auscultate. Um, And that's because they're kind of like sipping a straw at the bottom of a drink. There's like fluid filling up in there. Now, um, the mainstays of therapies include nitrates and reducing blood pressure. And that's in order to reduce the pressure behind and in front of the heart so that it could pump better. So if you're decreasing the backflow by vasodilation with the nitrates and then also the overall blood pressure. Um, we also use diuretics to reduce the excess fluid and positive pressure ventilation, such as with CPAP or BiPAP. And what positive pressure ventilation does is that it stents open the airways, pushes fluid out of the way, and thus allows for gas exchange to occur. Now, the other major process that we're talking about today is COPD, and that's primarily a disorder of bronchoconstriction. And both asthma and COPD are diseases characterized by small airway inflammation and constriction. In this case, there's no fluid stuck in the alveoli. It's actually air trapped in there. And because the airways are narrowed and there's a lot of inflammation, um, we hear wheezing. And I think we briefly mentioned that you can have a little bit of wheezing in CHF as well. Um, That's People used to call that a cardiac wheeze back in the day. But this would be a more pronounced wheeze, I would say. Now, the medications that we use in this case are very different. Um, Once they do get to the hospital, we give them steroids to decrease the inflammation, beta agonists, um, which we also use in the pre-hospital setting to relax and open airways. But really positive pressure ventilation has been shown to improve this dramatically as well. And again, it stents open the airways that are small or collapsing and allows for gas exchange to occur. So the good news is that even though CHF and COPD are really hard to tell apart, the treatment that's going to work the best is the same for both. And that's going to be your positive pressure ventilation via CPAP in our pre-hospital system here. Some pre-hospital systems do use BiPAP. um, And then in the hospital setting, we tend to use BiPAP. Either way, positive pressure ventilation is the final treatment step in both treatment protocols for our local system and works. And just so you guys know, even as physicians, sometimes we get these patients and we don't know if it's CHF or COPD. It's always the question, which one is it? Oftentimes we'll put them on BiPAP until we gather more data. And that data is going to be labs, chest x-ray, ultrasound. Um, Often it's going to be that initial chest x-ray that we immediately get that tells us which disease process we're dealing with. And as Patil mentioned, positive pressure ventilation is really, really beneficial for these patients, especially the sickest ones. Several studies have shown in both disease processes that this can save lives. Pre-hospital disaster medicine in 2013 uh, searched over 1,200 articles, of which they actually used 12, and the majority of these studies found that the use of CPAP in the pre-hospital setting was associated with reduced short-term mortality, as well as reduced rates of intubation, which is awesome. 
um, in CHF and pulmonary edema specifically. Non-invasive ventilation has been shown to decrease mortality and decrease intubation. And this was shown in several studies, including in a 2006 study out of Annals of Emergency Medicine and a 2004 study in the Emergency Medicine Journal. In addition to that, in COPD, Positive pressure ventilation is also life-saving. For example, a study in internal medicine in 2008 looked at 186 patients with COPD, and instead of intubation, placed them on positive pressure ventilation, and they actually didn't even require intubation, only required intubation in eight of those patients. So this is a practice-changing intervention, and we should be doing it for these sicker patients. So now why don't we just place everyone on CPAP, right? And don't give them any meds and just transport them. Well, that's kind of an interesting question. But just remember, CPAP is not a definitive treatment to reverse the underlying disease process. You know, it does allow the patient to get more oxygen, help split open those airways, but it doesn't really um, address the underlying reason that the patient's unable to breathe. So the medication is what really helps do that. So they're kind of like an adjunct used mostly together. Okay, so there's a study in 2017 out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, and that looked at almost 400 sick patients, and they received hydrose nitroglycerin, and this decreased their ICU admission rate and decreased their length of stay. This helps show the importance of nitroglycerin with CPAP. This is important, too, because here locally, um, SEMSA, the Central California EMS Agency, they look at CPAP use when no medications are given. And this is a quality improvement project, and it tracks every time a CPAP is applied and medications are not given. And this is because the medications are the thing that are treating the underlying disease process, and the CPAP is not. So the EMS agency here locally really wants you to put in that nitrates and put on the CPAP, or start that albuterol treatment and start the CPAP. So please always remember to give your medications with CPAP. Just to review, we're going to go through a few kind of one-sentence cases, and then we're going to discuss whether it applies more to COPD or CHF and why. So our first case, a 79-year-old female presents two days after Thanksgiving with shortness of breath occurring while sleeping in the middle of the night. So it woke her up from sleep. Now, this is going to be more likely to be CHF. And that's because she had Thanksgiving dinner, right? So that's increased salt and fluid intake. That can cause CHF exacerbations. And then patients with difficulty breathing while asleep may have orthopnea, which is a pretty sensitive indicator of pulmonary edema. Orthopnea is when you can't sleep, you can't breathe when you're laying down flat and you need pillows to prop up. Or sometimes people say that they have to sit up in a chair in order to go to sleep because they just can't breathe when they're laying flat. And I'll also um, just say in my experience, if somebody has shortness of breath that wakes them up in the middle of the night, especially between like 4 and 6 a.m., it's always a CHF exacerbation or, or, a, or an MI. And that makes sense, right? Your cortisol levels surge, different hormones surge between um, you know, that time in the morning. And so that kind of trips this off in their body. Let's jump to another case, 68-year-old male. He's a smoker, recent cough and cold, URI symptoms. He has progressive shortness of breath over the last three days. So what do you guys think this is, COPD or CHF? You know, smoking leads to COPD. So this gentleman's a longtime smoker. Cough and colds, you know, when you have cough and cold symptoms, you have inflammation of your upper airways. That leads to an exacerbation of this chronic inflammation of the lower airways. So this would be a COPD exacerbation. He'd need his albuterol and CPAP if he was severely short of breath. All right, let's talk about another case. So this case is a middle-aged male two days after Christmas history of MI presenting with shortness of breath when lying down. 
systolic blood pressure of 220, but has wheezing on auscultation. So this case is really similar to Scott's case as we talked about earlier. This is more likely to be CHF. Don't let the wheezing fool you. Wheezing, as we talked about, can be present in pulmonary edema. And the clues in this story are, you know, extreme hypertension is a clue that it can be CHF. Typically, COPD patients solely with the history of COPD don't necessarily get extremes of blood pressure. And this patient also had orthopnea, which is shortness of breath when lying down in the middle of the night. And hopefully you gather all this data and use all the data together to come up with a diagnosis. So now we have the case of a 57-year-old female, a 30-year smoker, presenting with shortness of breath, diaphoresis, and a recent hospital admission for a heart attack. Her systolic blood pressure is 80 palp. Now, this is more likely to be CHF um, because in the setting of a recent MI, hypotension uh, can be clues that you're dealing with a cardiac etiology. Most COPD patients don't have extremes of blood pressure. So if the blood pressure is very high or very low, you're going to be thinking of something else. Now, you may not want to give this person nitrates because of the low blood pressure, but you should have a high suspicion to treat using the CHF protocol and starting her on CPAP would be appropriate. Okay, next case. So 75-year-old male is a smoker, presents with shortness of breath and leg edema. So the kicker with this one is the leg edema. So don't let this patient's history of smoking fool you into thinking it's new COPD. The presence of leg edema should point you into the right direction that is on the CHF path. So you'd want to be on the CHF protocol for this. So there was a 2017 study in the Journal of Circulation that looked at over 4,000 patients. These patients all showed pedal edema, and it was associated with heart failure hospitalizations. So even in patients who had not been officially diagnosed with CHF yet, the presence of this pedal edema um, kind of tipped off that they were going to develop heart problems. So this study showed that pedal edema in community patients, so non-nursing home patients, can be an early sign of heart failure. So if you see someone with pedal edema, really think CHF. So why does it even matter which protocol we use? Well, there is some harm to giving some medications. In a study in 2008 out of Annals of Emergency Medicine, 21% of patients with the eventual diagnosis of heart failure who initially received bronchodilators by EMS or the ED had higher rates of the need for intubation and higher rates of ICU admission. And this is most likely due to giving a beta agonist like albuterol to a decompensated heart failure patient. This can lead to an increased heart rate, uh, increased oxygen demand mismatch, making the heart outwork its oxygen supply, decreasing the time it has to really fill up and pump blood effectively. And this can actually cause a worsening heart failure. So it really is important. Your pre-hospital assessment is important, and we should try to get these patients started on the right pathway as soon as possible. Now, there are other ideas for how to help pre-hospital providers differentiate between CHF and COPD. Um, Something we often see in COPD patients is that because they're trapping all this air in their lungs, they often have high end tidal CO2, which means that they're retaining a lot of carbon dioxide and the air that they are breathing has a lot of it. So there was a study in 2015 Emergency Medicine Journal showing that they placed end tidal CO2 monitors on these patients in the pre-hospital setting. And if it was less than 40, it actually had a sensitivity for predicting heart failure of 93% and a negative predictive value of 94%. So that means if they didn't have a high end tidal CO2, they were more likely to have CHF. 
So these are just some things that people are trying out in the field to try and help us differentiate between CHF and COPD. Well, let's just run through these protocols really quick to remind everybody here in our local Central California EMS agency, um, our protocol for shortness of breath with bronchospasm. Patil, you want to take us through that? So first, we're going to start off with assessing the patient, um, checking out their ABCs like every other protocol, securing the airway if needed, assisting respirations as needed, placing on oxygen, low flow initially, high flow if the patient is unstable, and placing them on a monitor. Now, the next thing is to um, initiate nebulized albuterol. That's going to be your 2.5 milligram or 3 ml nebulized albuterol with your nebulizer using pressurized oxygen that you could repeat twice. And then immediately after you start the first treatment, you should initiate transport. If the patient is intubated, albuterol may be given via bag valve mask after epinephrine has been given. Now, the next step in our pathway is epinephrine, and that's if the patient is in severe distress. And that would be 0.01 mg per kg of the 1 to 1,000 dilution IM uh, with a maximum dose of 0.4 mLs. And there's really some caveats to this. So if the patient is older than 70, you can't give it. And they should have a history of asthma or COPD, no signs or symptoms suggesting MI, no history of angina MI or a stroke. And then really the goal is to transport as soon as possible, stat transport if the patient is unstable. Now, in addition to our caveat, uh, we can do CPAP and then magnesium sulfate. And the magnesium dose is going to be two grams over two minutes. And you can repeat that once after five minutes if needed. And then you're going to try to attempt an IV access, contact hospital. And what I will actually just add in is lately, I've seen more and more EMS providers using the magnesium with the CPAP and albuterol when I get these patients. And I feel like I didn't used to see the magnesium used as much before, but now we are. And I feel like they're all looking better, like those patients are looking better. So so good job on following the protocol and, you know, everybody like using all the medications listed in the protocol because these things do work and they do help. Just a reminder for the audience, magnesium sulfate is a smooth muscle relaxer. And so it kind of works on those um, small muscles in the airway to kind of relax those airways and open up the airways and allow them to breathe better. Um, Sajin, let's jump to shortness of breath with pulmonary edema, including congestive heart failure protocol. So here again, we're going to start with our basics, our ABCs, make sure the airway is secure, position the patient properly. Next thing we're going to do is give them supplemental oxygen, start with low flow or high flow if the patient is unstable, uh, sit the patient up and put them on the monitor. The next thing we're going to reach for is our nitroglycerin. And this is titratable based on the patient's blood pressure. So we're going to give them 0.4 milligrams or one tablet if the systolic blood pressure is between 100 to 120, two tablets if the systolic blood pressure is 120 to 200, or three tablets if the systolic blood pressure is greater than 200. And we should be monitoring the blood pressure after giving them nitroglycerin. It's possible for them to drop pretty quickly. And we don't administer repeat doses if the systolic blood pressure is less than 100. Next thing we're going to do is, of course, transport this patient. Minimize your on-scene time. In this patient who has chest pain and signs of pulmonary edema, we're going to try to get a 12 lead. And then we're going to place the patient on CPAP. And this is, again, if respiratory rate is greater than 30, if the patient is 
visibly dyspneic. We talked about the evidence behind it. After that, we're going to be adding on the nitro paste, one inch if the systolic blood pressure is between 100 to 120, or two inches if the blood pressure is greater than 120. And then, of course, IV access and then contacting the hospital and transporting as fast as we can. We all know that CHF and COPD are very hard to um, tell apart sometimes. And so we hope that this podcast made that a little simpler to kind of tell the difference between the two. Let's go around and talk about our take-home points. Can't miss key actions. Sajin. My take-home point is going to be CPAP is great, but it really is not effective without the medications. Treat the underlying disease. Give them the medication they need. Patio. Uh, mine is going to be to use uh, the patient's medical history um, to help guide you down one pathway or the other um, and to not let wheezing fool you because it could be either. And my take-home point is look at that blood pressure. Uh, most COPD patients have a very normal blood pressure. So if there's extremes of blood pressure, if the blood pressure is like 80 systolic or the blood pressure is you know greater than 180, very hypertensive, just think CHF. So CHF has extremes of blood pressure. COPD has pretty normal blood pressures. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.